Here we are right now with our next instalment in our series, Finding Other Worlds, a commentary on The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So happy to be with you. I hope you're enjoying this series as much as I am. Today we begin The Horse and His Boy. I believe we're up to episode 5 or 6. I'm not really keeping count. But this is the first episode in... On, I should say. It's the first episode on The Horse and His Boy. So... That's where we're at. We'll probably do... It'll probably take us two episodes to get through it. But we'll see how it goes. You never know. I mean, so far it's been nicely even for two episodes per book. And that's just the way it's turned out so far. So who knows what will happen in the future, right? You can say that about a lot of things. (laughs) So this is a significant book. This is a very significant story. And it's quite different to all the others in so many ways. And as we do, we begin where the story begins, which is in a far distant land, which is a long, long way away from Narnia. And there is a little boy who works for his father, and his name is Shasta. Now, Shasta is a curious little boy, and he dreams of traveling. He dreams of going to the north. And he particularly dreams of going to the north because, well, no one ever talks about what's in the north. No one ever talks about who comes from there, what is over there. And it might be even that Shasta has a bit of an inkling, a bit of a suspicion that has led him to believe that there's great wonders in that northern part. Now, as for the south, well, people talk about that area all the time. People come from that area all the time. And they're usually pretty boring people. So Shasta has very little interest in going north. Now, the man that Shasta works for, lives with, apparently his papa, is quite adamant about this. He's quite insistent on this. Whenever Shasta would ask about, well, what is in the north? Can you tell me stories? Have you ever been there? And one day, the papa says, well, application to business is the root of prosperity. But those who ask questions that do not concern them are steering the ship of folly towards the rock of indigence. Indigence. Indignance. (laughs) Jeez, I'm such, such a silly duffer with my words sometimes. And the lesson, the picture there, is that this little boy has a lust, 
for traveling, for finding other places, for going somewhere, somewhere beyond. And the senior people in his life, the senior person, says that's a waste of time. Focus on business. Focus on prosperity. Focus on making something for yourself here. Those things, those dreams, those wants will only lead you to problems. They'll only lead you to folly. And that's something to be aware of. There's something actively being discouraged against the people, particularly the, the young ones, who want to explore. Now, in this story, it's actually not the boy that is the main character. It's actually this horse, which we're going to come to soon enough. And to just say a little bit more about this boy, well, one day, an emperor, well, not an emperor, a sort of warrior figure rides past and sees him working. And then this warrior comes in and makes himself a visitor in the house. And after the boy's gone to bed, well, this warrior gets to talking to the papa about buying him as a slave. Now, Shasta, he's a pretty curious little boy, so he's not really in bed. And he finds himself outside listening in to this conversation about this warrior, this person who's passing by and his papa haggling over his price to be the slave. And there's a few things that he finds out, quite shocking things. First and foremost, he finds out that he is not his son. He is not his father's son. And this is obviously quite a shock. It's actually quite a realization to have your roots and your ancestry pulled out from underneath you. Now that is actually something that occurs to all of us. That's actually something that everyone has to face. Now in the case of Shasta, he has this overt lie from this man who is not his father, telling him his father. Now that's not what everyone has to deal with. That's not what I'm talking about when I say that we all have to confront this. Very few people actually do have that situation in modern society in first world countries. It's not a common situation. But what we all do have to contend with is the difference between the story we are told about our origins, our source and our ancestry and the truth of the matter. And there is always a difference. For every single one of us, there is a difference which is comparable to living your whole life under the assumption that this man is your father when he's not. And that is the truth of the matter. That is the leap of coming out of your cultural conditioning, the paradigms of the times you live, and actually returning to a deeper truth, which is the answer to the question, where do you come from? 
What are your origins? What is the source of your life? What is the source of your essence? What is the source of you? And in many ways, that's a journey. That's a path. That coming out of the paradigms you're in and finding new perspectives. And well, really, it's like finding a new world, right? That's what's happened to Shasta. He's realized, okay, this is not my papa. Now I'm in a whole new world. And for some of us, that process is gradual. Some of that's, that process takes a long time. It takes a number of incremental realizations or openings or burstings or breakthroughs. But also I feel that there are significant moments. There are significant breakthroughs. And one of those that you'll find on your path is that the story of your origins is not what you've been told. And when you've broken that truth, when you've broken into that truth, well, you've found a whole new world. So, Shasta goes back to bed. He's sleeping in the stable. And the warrior's horse is also out there. And Shasta starts talking to the horse. And, of course, he's wondering a lot of things because he's thinking, well, I should have known this was never my true father. And who could I be? I could be the son of an emperor. I could be the son of someone else. And maybe my new master will be better. Maybe my new master will give me a good life. And he'll free me and he'll have food for me and I'll live in a rich place. Maybe it will be a good thing. He's very optimistic. And as he's talking, he's sort of sitting by the horse and he looks at the horse and he says, Well, I wish you could tell me what this master is like. I wish you could talk and I could find out. And this horse turns to him and says, But I can talk. And then begins the friendship of Bree, the horse, and Shasta, the slave boy. And of course they keep talking, and many things come out about Shasta, about, sorry, about Bree to Shasta, as he tells his story and he explains. Now, there's a principle to be understood. Now, this, this character of Bree, this horse, there's, there's many layers to him. And there are many complexes that are revealed in the arc of this character. And I still maintain that this Bree horse character is the, the key character to the whole narrative. So, as they're talking, it comes out that Bree is a horse from Narnia. He has been from the far north. He has come from the far north many, many years ago. And of course, 
He's not just any horse, because he's an intelligent horse. He's a horse of good standing. He's a horse, well, quite frankly, quite simply, that can talk. And his story is that he was playing on some distant slopes, on the far edges of the borders of Narnia, as a foal, as a young horse, and he got kidnapped, he got rounded up and carted off to another world or another country, we could say. And he regrets this. He feels very bad about this because, well, his mother did warn him, right? His mother was trying to protect him and say, you know, this will happen if you don't stay close. And since then, well, he's had to pretend to be a dumb horse, just a normal horse like any other. He's been smart enough to know that Well, if he's a talking horse and he comes out as a talking horse, he'll have no chance of escape. So, understand the principle here. This is one of the core key principles of this character, which is that he's this magical creature. He's this intelligent creature. And he's been taken out of his natural habitat and put into a circumstance where he's had to pretend to be something that he's not, and that thing is something more unenlightened or something not so glamorous, not so beautiful than what he really is. So his talents, his intelligence, his real glorified essence of what he is can't be shown, it can't be brought out. Now, this comes up in many ways in this character, so we'll be able to see this as the story unfolds. And what else can we say? There's not saying anything to adults. So, yeah, so this comes out, and we'll we'll get to more of Shasta as the story unfolds, I think. That's probably enough for just now. To move on in the plot, well... Bree is thinking, now's my chance to escape. Because this boy is thinking to escape. Because Bree has told him that his master is not a good master, which also comes out. And he says, well, let's, let's think this through, right? The horse can't really escape by himself, because if anyone sees a horse by itself, it gets rounded up, right? But with the boy... The boy could be like the servant. So they decide to escape, and very quickly it's figured out that, well, Bree's in charge. Bree is actually much more intelligent, because for one thing, Shasta has never ridden a horse. He doesn't know how to ride a horse. And, well, just generally, Bree is more well-travelled. So there's this funny thing of Bree teaching Shasta how to ride a horse and he's talking to him of what to do and how to do it and these different things and how to strap on his saddle and buckle up certain things and pack certain things and not to touch the reins and all these sorts of things. And it's just so clear in that moment, in those first unfoldings of the friendship, of the relationship, that Bree is in charge. Bree is the one who 
knows what's going on. He has the highest, if we could say, level of awareness. He has the highest intelligence of how can we get things done and the best way to get things done and the best things to do. And in that is, well, it's the essence of the whole story, which is why it's called The Horse and His Boy. And you can see this in all sorts of relationships. I mean, could we say that the relationships that are the way they are are so because of the differences in consciousness and awareness between those involved? And to say that another way, we could say, is it that the person with the most awareness prevails with their agenda in any relationship? And I think, I think it would be difficult to make that as a general principle or as a rule that applies to all. But I think in many cases the answer is yes. I mean, the exception to the rule that I'm thinking of is that, well, if you're just a brute, if you're just insistent, if you're just really staunch, well, you can prevail with your agenda without being more aware, because awareness does have degrees of subtlety or contain a kind of subtlety, which can unfortunately be wiped out by brute force. But that aside, if you're talking about sensitive beings, intelligent beings, with a degree of openness and willingness to cooperate, then the answer is yes, the one with the higher awareness prevails. And of course, Brie and Shasta, well, they are of higher awareness. They are quite open. They're good people. So, where to next? They conspire to run away. The boy learns to ride. And then they head off in the middle of the night, making a head start. Now, it's a long way to Narnia, which we'll find out. And there's a lot of things they have to get through. It's going to be a long journey. And they travel on for days and days and they get into a bit of a rhythm and there are certain things that they learn more about each other and they become friends but of course it's not exactly quite like friends there is still a kind of what what what, what would be the right word it's sort of a a superiorness to Shasta that Bree has now the other thing about Bree is that even amongst normal horses, he is a high-standing horse. He's a warrior horse. And maybe we'll talk about that more as we keep going through this plot. So they're traveling through, and one night, they notice that it could be that someone's following them, someone on a horse, a lone rider such as them. And they make their way off and away in the other direction, but something comes up, which is a lion. 
And the lion roars and they get scared and they go off in another direction. But this leads them back to this lone rider. And as things would unfold, it's actually a strange series of events where they're trying to get away from this lion and also trying to avoid this other lone rider. And all the while, as they get further and further away from this lion, which seems to be always sneaking up onto onto them and roaring and scaring them along, they end up right next to this other rider. And what do they learn? Well, after they've crossed the river and safely put some distance behind them and the lion, they see that this is a girl with her horse. So we have a mare and a girl. And they sit and they camp and they get to talking. They get to know each other. Now, this is Aravis, Aravis, Aravis. I'm just going to call it Aravis. I don't know how to pronounce her name. This is the name of the girl with her horse. So we've now got two horses and a girl and a boy. And Aravis's story is that she's a princess and her father had arranged to have her married. And the man that she'd been arranged to be married to was someone that she didn't like very much. He's a bit old, he's a bit fat, he's quite ugly, and there's really no love in it at all. There's really no attraction at all. So Aravis has done quite a clever scheme. But before she did that, actually we should back up because she... The, the, the moment she found out about her horse also being of one of Narnia origins was when she'd found out about this arranged marriage, realized that it's hopeless, and she'd gone out into the middle of nowhere with a knife. And she'd sort of taken out this knife, propped it up in such a way as that she could hurl herself onto it and it would stab her in the heart. So she was preparing to kill herself when this horse opened her mouth, this mare, to say, no, you shouldn't do this. There's another way. There's something else that you should try. It would be a tragedy if you were to go through with this. So that's how their friendship started. And as it happened, the Mare and Aravis conspired quite cleverly to get away from the arranged marriage. At first, she went back and decided to go along with it, so there would be no suspicion. And then she arranged to have some time away to do prayers and offerings and celebrations, and that was her way of having a lead to get away from her father. And the servant that she took with her, now this is an important part of the story, one of the servants that she took with her as she was escaping, she actually drugged 
And this is a part of the story that Shasta doesn't feel very good about. He feels a bit like, are you sure you should have done that? Are you sure you should have involved someone or punished someone just to get away from your arranged marriage? But that's something that will come back later in the story. So she makes her way away and she decides with her horse to run off to Narnia to live there. So we have these two horses and these two children making their way to Narnia and they travel and they come to a city and as they go through there's this funny thing of Bree having to scruff himself up as a kind of carrier horse, right? Because they've got to go through this city and they don't want to be noticed and they're trying to dress themselves up to be just like, okay, so we're traveling horses which are just carrying sort of baggage and these two kids are the slaves that are doing it for their masters. And this for Bree is quite tricky because he's quite obviously a war horse, He's quite obviously very strong, very tall, very well-bred. So he's sort of in this thing where he's got to pretend and try and pass for something even more less than what he is in order to not stand out. And this is something about being out of the place where you come from. This is something of being in an environment which is not your natural environment. It is that your talents don't get recognized. You're quite helpless in a way. Your value is very much undervalued. It's really not there at all. And this is what Bree has to go through. This is what he has to learn. This is what he has to see. And, of course, for him, finding another world of going into this distant land has always been a punishment. You know, so much of the time we think of finding other worlds as this beautiful, glorious, ah, it's all magical sort of thing. But that's not quite right because there is so much pain. There is so much confronting how worthless you are and feeling worthless. And this is seen also even in the character of Lucy, right? You remember when Lucy first found Narnia? When she came back, well, she was actually miserable because no one believed her. No one trusted her. She couldn't share it with anyone. Now you'd think, wow, you've had this magical experience in this magical land. You've found this glorious world. What a wonderful thing for your inner life. But actually, Lucy was very much miserable. And for so much of Bree's life, well, he's been miserable. He's been unable to be what he wants to be. He's been able to, unable to express and live the higher talents that he has. So they're making their way through this city. And this weird thing happens, which is that someone looks at Shasta and says, hey, there you are. We've been looking all over for you. 
and they grab him and sort of pull him off the horse and cart him off in this wagon off to the temple somewhere or one of the high high class living quarters now he's pretty much caught off guard right what is he going to do he can't explain his story they've obviously mistaken him for someone else and he doesn't want to say anything because they might kill him right he doesn't want to say like no i'm not the guy you're looking for and he doesn't want to explain his real story right he doesn't want to say oh actually i'm on a talking horse to a distant land it might come out that he's been running away because remember he's a fugitive from where he's come from so it might be that people are even on the lookout for him so he just keeps quiet and he goes along with it and where he ends up is in royalty quarters and he sort of sits quiet in the corner and there's a whole bunch of people around and he just listens along and as it turns out Queen Susan of Narnia is in that place. She's visiting this city from afar. And she's talking with Edmund and Lucy, who are also there, about, well, this suitor, who is the king of the current city that they're in. And they're wondering about, well, is she going to marry her or not? And she doesn't really like him. Susan is thinking, you know, he's not for me. He's actually a bit fat, a bit ugly, a bit old. Not that there's anything wrong with being fat, ugly and old. I probably shouldn't say anything too discriminatory about those people because I might be one very soon. (laughs) It won't be long before I'm in that category, maybe. But the sort of court is thinking about how, well, okay, so... You don't like him. We should probably get going then, but we're starting to get the feeling that if you go, he might actually be angry about that. He's the sort of person who would get sort of up in arms. So we need to think of pretext as to how to get out of here, is what Susan is saying. And the other thing is that they've actually been traveling on boat. So this is a seaside city. And they're going to go out back to Narnia on their ship. And they set up pretexts to do that, to get away. So Shasta is sort of keeping to himself and not saying anything. And this is interesting because it's a thing that he's learnt from his so far conditioning from his childhood, which is that you shouldn't say anything to adults if you don't have to, because usually they ruin the plans. They stop things from going on. They stop things from going ahead. So often, when a child says something, it's used as evidence against them. It's used as a kind of thing to get them in trouble. So at this point in the story, to the reader... It's clear that Shasta could have just been honest, right? Imagine if he'd actually spurted out his story and said, well, I want to get back to Narnia and I've got a Narnia horse and some friends who are also trying to get back. Let's join up. 
And of course, Edmund, Susie, uh, Edmund, Susie, and Lucy are kind people. They're very gentle. They're honest people. They're very upheld and understanding and all about truth. And they would have been very understanding to Shasta. So this little thing of not speaking the truth and really not saying anything because you might get in trouble really costs a lot, right? It costs so much. It's really a it's really a hinge of the entire plot, as we'll see. So people clear off and Shasta has some time alone in this place. And this curious thing turns up, which is another boy who climbs in the window. And they sort of look at each other for a second and they don't realize that they look alike. So the reason that Shasta has been caught up with this royalty is because he has a look-alike, which is actually his brother, but they don't figure this out yet. So his twin brother turns up and they're sort of trying to talk to each other to say, well, what, what's been going on? What have you been doing? And it turns out that this twin brother had been chasing someone and then fought someone all because they said something naughty uh, they said something rude about queen susan and then he chased someone else and then someone else fell over and then he'd been on this long journey and been round and back and into all these sorts of mischief and then come back to well where he normally is so the two boys just decide well let's just trade places so this boy, Corin is his name, just says, okay, see you later. And Shasta jumps out the window and goes back to where he was going to be meeting Bree and Aravis and her horse. So that's a very funny turn of events. That's a very funny hinge, as I said just before, in the plot now, what happened to Aravis after Shasta was taken? Well, she kept her cool, grabbed grab the held of Bree, and sort of went on her way, and she was pretty much all right. Until, as it happened, <laughs> as it does in these fairy tale stories, <laughs> she runs into an old friend, old school friend probably, and this old friend is like, oh, wonderful to see you. Let's be friends. Come over for tea, this sort of thing. And she goes along for it and she says a whole bunch of things about, actually, I need to be out of sight. I need to be kept in secret. Don't let anybody know I'm here and all these sorts of things. And they talk a bit. And this school friend isn't really very much interested in the adventures of Aravis. But they go on. And they find themselves working out how to get Aravis out of the place, out of the city, without being seen, with the horses. And as they're doing this, as they're making their way through, they end up hiding as some royal people come past. And who would it be but the very man who had wanted to marry Susan? So by a chance series of events, Aravis is hiding in this room with this man 
What's his name? Rabadash. Rabadash is his name. So he's sort of there with his dad and some royal nobles and some servants talking about, well, I want to marry Susan. And (laughs) this conversation, (laughs) this conversation, my goodness, you wouldn't believe it. Here's the thing, right? <laughs> how do I how do I say this without really sounding there's there's no way to say this without oh my goodness there's no way to say this without sounding really bad <laughs> but it's the truth it's the truth it's so true so here's the situation here's why I'm laughing so much Susan doesn't want to marry this guy, this Rabadash. This Rabadash is sort of this over-entitled, a bit obtuse, royalty kind of person, kind of fat man, kind of full of himself. Now, (laughs) there's really two ways about this, right? There's two things about this. And I can't even bring myself to say it. Look, I just have to spit it out. What will man do for a woman? And the answer is he will go to war. He will raise up an army and conquer an entire city for a woman. That's what it comes down to, really, right? He would go to the ends of the earth with all of his forces for the woman he loves. Now, the two sides of this is when it's true love, when it's romance, when it's beautiful, well, that's a good thing, right? You'll die for her. You'll go to the ends of the earth for her. You'll do anything for her, right? Ah, isn't that a wonderful romantic fairy tale story? The other side is, oh, I'll raise hell and I'll be ruthless and it's not beautiful. It's actually selfish. It's actually not worth it because, well, she doesn't even love you. So it's going to be a big waste of time and energy for everyone. And that's, well, the latter is how we found Rabadash being and he's even talking with his dad because he's like okay well just say that I'm going off on my own now there's a few technicalities here which is that to get to Susan because at this stage she's already left he has to travel across the desert and then across another country through another city and then get to Narnia And that's not going to be feasible. It's not geographically possible for him to take an army like that and then to have a war with Narnia because by that time, well, they'll be tired and they'll be exhausted and they'll be out of supplies and so on. And Narnia, well, you don't really know what you're dealing with anyway because it's a bit of a mystical land. It's a bit of a magical land. So what Rabadash works out is that he can attack a closer city and then get that as a, prov- uh, as a sort of kind of provoking 
and a kind of base of operations and a way into Narnia from there. And his dad is sort of like, this is, this is so over the top, you know. You're a prince. You don't really control all of the army. I'm the real king. And Rabbit Ash is like, well, you can play it off in your international relations by saying I went rogue because I was so in love with this woman, because I was so desperate to have her as a wife. And you can just say that you had nothing to do with it, so there won't be any bad relations between this city and the other city, Arnhem Land. It is called, I believe. Let's just call it Arnhem Land. (laughs) So... Aravis has found out that Rabidash is off with 200 horses to attack Arnhem Land, who is an innocent bystander, just so that he can provoke Narnia into giving up Susan as his wife. Whoa. The things that man will do for woman. And <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to put it. I mean, love and war, right? Thanos and ta- Talanos. What is it? Thanos and tha- Thalanos. No, I'll get this right. It's Eros and Thanatos. So eros is the drive of life, love, sexuality, desire, self-satisfaction. And thanatos, from the Greek word death, is the drive of aggression, destruction, violence. That's what's going on here. Love and death. (laughs) Isn't that just what a woman is? Okay, before I start empathizing with Rabadash, let's continue in our story. So, the two of them, or the four of them, the two horses and their two kids, had agreed to meet, if they had been separated, at the tombs on the other side of town. So, for about a couple of days... Shasta is hanging out by himself and he's just waiting around. And they're pretty long days. They're pretty long days indeed because he's trying to find some food for himself. He's trying to keep warm. It's also a little bit spooky there, particularly at night because it's, well, it's a graveyard. It's a tomb stone area. And while he's waiting around, he actually feels a tug on his leg one time. And he comes out of his sleep and he sees, well, there's a cat there. And he looks at this cat and he sort of notices it and it seems friendly enough. And it sort of just sits by him. It's just sort of with him. And he feels comfortable enough to sleep with the cat watching over him. And you know, there's something real, there's something real, well, I don't have words for it. There's something 
Well, there's something that doesn't have words to it in being alone for an extended period of time. And, of course, there is a difference between being alone consciously, as in doing meditative practice, and waiting for someone who you hope or you don't even know will turn up. And trust that things will change is a big lesson to learn in situations like that. It's a kind of trust that isn't quite explicit. And of course, there's no guarantee that you will relax into your aloneness when you have extended periods of aloneness. And yet there are still lessons to be learnt. There are still things that come from being alone. And what Shasta learns, or one of them, things that he learns as he's alone for these few days, waiting for his friends, is that, well, time is relative. And time can draw out very long when you're waiting for something. Hours seem longer and longer and the days seem achingly long when you have this sense of, well, how will things be in the near future hanging over you? So, his friends do turn up. And he does manage to catch up with Bree and with Avis and her mare. And between the two of them, they put their information together, right? Because Shasta knows that Susan is trying to get away from this man who wants to marry her. And he doesn't want to marry and Bree tells him, well, Susan is the queen. Wait, does he know that Susan is the queen? Does he know that they go to Narnia? I don't know if they know that they're going to Narnia. I think they do. They must, right? Because the other side of it is that Avis says, well, now this tyrant, this rubber dash, is sending his army to attack this innocent city And we have to warn them. We have to tell them. We need to get them to prepare. So that's their mission, right? That's what they have to be off on. And it's actually on the way to Narnia anyway. So they're going to be going through that city more or less. So the information comes together between the four of them. And they work out what they have to do, which is that they have to get to Arnhem Land and warn them that Rabadash is after them to attack them for no good reason, which is just to provoke Narnia and to let it be known that he's going to wage war in the name of marrying Susan, who doesn't want to marry him. And they have to make their way across the desert 
and through a gully to get there. So it's a long journey through hot sand and they become very tired. And they do have to keep a steady pace because, well, now they've got Rabadash and his army chasing behind them. So that's where we'll leave it for now and we'll continue this narrative in the next episode and we'll be talking more about the principles of the journey that Bree is making with Shasta and his mare friend and her girl, Avis. Aravis. Aravis? Aravis. These mythological fairy tales names have always been a bit of a tongue twister, haven't they? So, before I divulge, thanks very much for tuning in. Well, stay tuned. Very soon, we'll be back with the next episode. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please share your favorite episode, as this will help me find my audience. This will help to find the people, as I always say, who are ready to hear what we are saying here. And it might be that the themes in this series are not really that heavy. Well, there are some heavy themes, but it's not like it's what we can say. It, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's natural to say, well, we're ready to hear this. Maybe for some of the other episodes on the Andrew Lake podcast, well, it applies more there. So let me just say, well, if there's someone who's willing to enjoy what we're talking about here, let's just say that. I mean, after all, it is a... It is a fairy tale. It is some fun. We are having some fun here. Let's not make it too serious. Let's not make it too heavy. Let's not turn this into Eros and Thanatos. <laughs> we'll find out what happens next episode. That's all I have to say for now. <laughs>